Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strebel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Good to see each of you here today, and, and uh, especially good to have some visitors among us. Sister John has got several kinfolk with us, and sisters, and her mother, Miss Phillips, it's sure good to see you out today, and uh, good to see Christopher, and always good to see the Browns with us, and, and all the others I may have missed. <clears throat> As I said this past Lord's Day morning, um, I purpose, I trust by God's guidance to begin a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we want to turn there this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm going to do something that uh, I've never done before. Well, for that matter, I've never preached through 1 Thessalonians before here. Um, and Brother, Brother Wallace taught through 1 Thessalonians. That was the first Bible study he did when we began the church 25 years ago. And uh, perhaps that's why it's somewhat on my heart, this being our 25th anniversary year uh, since the, this church's constitution. Uh, but I'm going to do something a little bit differently with First Thessalonians. In fact, I'm going to preach through First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, simultaneously, um, because. They deal with much the same subject matter, were written within just a few months of each other, and are generally considered to be among, if not the, first uh, letters that the Apostle wrote that, that we have preserved for us here and the Holy Spirit preserved for us as, as Scripture, Holy Scripture. And so we want to consider these two books together as we look at what takes place with the church here at Thessalonica. I relate a good bit to the church at Thessalonica in terms of the, the uh, missionary work that God has blessed us to be involved in here in this church and among our churches in the last uh, ten or so years. Um, and you'll see what I mean by that, I think, as, as we go along in this. This church was one of the first churches that was begun in, uh, in uh, Macedonia, what's now Greece. If you can kind of imagine, if your geography is not too, too uh, rusty, the uh, peninsula, the Greek peninsula, i got a name for that peninsula, my, my geography is too rusty to remember that. Um, but anyway, uh, the... You'll, you'll know how Greece kind of comes down in a little isthmus, they call it here, then opens up into a, a larger section south of that. The, the part that's north of the isthmus is referred to as Macedonia. And the part that's south is Achaia. Now, we call it all Greece, and so it is in the modern uh, day. That whole peninsula there is Greece. As a matter of fact, there's a little country, actually, uh, just north of that, it's been the breakup of, of Yugoslavia in the last 10 or 15 years. They call it Macedonia. 
little the little country there, the little breakaway republic there from Yugoslavia is called uh, Macedonia, and then then also a northern province of what's now Greece is called Macedonia, and they kind of argue over the name. Reminds me of somebody else. But anyway, um, that's that's who we're dealing with here, and I want to read just the first verse of First Thessalonians. And then I want to read the first verse of 2 Thessalonians. And then we're going to go to the 17th chapter of Acts and take a look at the founding of this church at Thessalonica. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, Paul and Silas of the book of Acts, and Timotheus, Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second epistle begins similarly. Paul and Silvanus, Paul and Silas and Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing the Apostle Paul does from here is break forth into thanksgiving. Now, that tells us something about this church. That is, Paul's uh, remembrance of the church at Thessalonica was a happy one. It's a fond one. Another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about this same time is the book of Galatians. And Galatia was this province back over in what, what is referred to as Asia Minor. It's what's now Turkey, kind of the interior of Turkey. And uh, there were churches in Galatia. Paul addressed his epistle of the Galatians to the churches of Galatia. And we won't turn over there and read it, but after Paul gets through with all the niceties, which are not just niceties, they have real meaning, and we want to take a look at that. Um, Paul, how can we say, he, he jumps on them with both feet, the churches of Galatia. And... If someone wrote us a letter like Paul wrote to the church at the churches of Galatia, um, if it were not that we were deeply under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I dare say we would be we would be quite uh, offended by the tone of his letter. He is not a happy camper when he finds out what's going on back in the churches of Galatia. The things that are some it's not so much that he's upset with them as people who are coming up, coming along behind him perverting the gospel. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who in the world has bewitched you that you should be so soon moved away from this gospel that we have preached into another, which is really not even another. Well, we're not preaching on Galatians, but um, I bring that out for a couple of reasons. Number one, Paul's thoughts of the church at Thessalonica are very pleasant ones. They're happy ones. Because as soon as he gets through the greetings in both these letters, he starts giving thanks. He thanks God for this about them, and he thanks God for that about them, and that they're doing this, and that they're doing that, and three things in particular that they were doing in the next few verses that we want to look at in depth, not today. Um, now, let's go back to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read uh, the account of the establishing of the church at Thessalonica. 
you know the first the first uh, name for Atlanta, Georgia was Marthasville. Atlanta was Marthasville. And some fella, one of the pioneers, had a daughter whom he loved very much. And so when they started the city of Atlanta, what was then, he wanted to honor his daughter, and he, so he called it Marthasville. Now, where it got changed and how I forgot a little, my, my Georgia history is really rusty, but I didn't remember that little tidbit. Well, Thessalonica is also named for a woman. Thessalonica is named for Alexander the Great's half-sister. Um, Philip, who was, who was uh, Alexander's father, was also the father of, of uh, a woman named Thessalonica who married a Greek general named Cassander. And he loved his wife so much that when he, when he uh, came over this and began to establish the city or kind of build it and do things that people do, he named it after his wife. So he named the city Thessalonica in honor of his wife. That was his wife's name, Thessalonica. And it's in Macedonia, and we won't back up and read this, but just to kind of bring you up to how, how Paul gets to Macedonia. He's over in Asia Minor, and, and uh, we're talking about the very western edge of what's now Turkey. And, and just right across the Aegean Sea there is Greece today, and of course in two, except it was not called Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, these two areas. And, and uh, Paul had, on his first missionary journey, just kind of taken a little round in the southern part of, of what's now Turkey, Asia Minor. But now on his second journey, we're in the second journey in Acts chapter 17, Paul has gone deeper. He's gone into the churches into Galatia, or he may not have himself actually ever gone there, but the churches were evangelized out of churches that he established. And then he ends up on the, on the, uh, east, uh, the western coast of, of Turkey. And uh, the city of Ephesus is, is the central, central point there. Derby and Lystra, we read about in the book of Acts. And, and, and here's Paul, and he's wondering what to do now. He's praying about what to do now. His, his, his intention, his first thought is, well, he's going to turn back. He's going to turn back east. He wants to go back up in. We have saved, he said, to go into Asia, but the Spirit of God forbade him. The Spirit of God said, no, I want you to go. And so he was praying about this and thinking about this. He's got to go somewhere. I mean, he's on, he's on the, the western edge of Turkey, and, and uh, he's, either, he's got to turn back, or what, what's he going to do? Well, in a vision at night, he sees a man from Macedonia. And all he says was that he records is, come over and help us. And based on this vision that the Apostle Paul had, well, he did just that. He came over to help them. With him was his, his traveling companion, Silas, whom we read about back in Acts chapter, I think, 15, when Paul and, and Barnabas had this contention and decided to go their separate ways. Paul took Silas, and he's, now he's making the second missionary journey. And, uh, and uh, Barnabas takes John Mark, and he kind of goes back to some of the original places, especially Cyprus. But anyway, so now Timothy was a, a convert to Christianity on Paul's first missionary journey into uh, Asia Minor. 
And now he has attached himself to the Apostle Paul and he has become the Apostle Paul's uh, traveling companion. That's Paul and Silas and Timothy. The three of them are traveling together. Paul sees this vision and just a man from Macedonia and he says, come over and help us. So he said, immediately we booked passage, sailed across the Aegean Sea and we landed at Philippi. And and in Philippi, the apostle went to the uh, the synagogue there, and um, and there were some some who were converted to the truth out of that. But also, that's where the great stories of uh, Lydia take place, the seller of purple, uh, a Gentile woman apparently, and also the Philippian jailer. Paul was Silas was thrown into jail, severely beaten, and uh, and in the midst of that, the Philippian jailer. And his family were converted. And, and so there was a church established there. And Paul uh, calls the, his jailers into question the next day. I guess he didn't have time to say, say, wait a minute before it happened. But anyway, the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. And he says, how come you have beaten a Roman citizen without a fair trial? And the city officials were aghast. I mean, this was serious business. To have punished a Roman citizen without a fair trial could lose them their jobs. And so they came and treated them, please, you know, forgive us, and we didn't know. And, and uh, so anyway, they left, and, and they went to um, Thessalonica. Philippi is kind of a military post, outpost. Macedonia, I mean, uh, Thessalonica is a commerce, center of commerce center of trade, a center of learning, culture, influence. And that's where Paul heads. Uh, he passes through a couple of towns we just mentioned. And he comes to Thessalonica. And let's read about what happens when he comes to Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took into them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I like that. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. Sorry, folks, down that they found in town. Um, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain of the brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, that these have turned the world upside down or come hither also, whom Jason has received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, one Jesus. And they trouble the people and the rulers of the city. Uh, and they trouble the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. And they sent the brethren immediately and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Barnabas by night into Berea, who coming thither went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, 
When he got down to Berea, he preached and, and he received a much more open reception from the Jews at Berea and comments that the Bereans were more noble than, the, than, the, than those of Thessalonica. We're talking about the Jews. The, the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica for this simple reason. He says because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things be so. They didn't just reject what was preached out of hand like many of the Jews did back at Thessalonica. They searched the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, things, would probably would have, things probably would have gone quite well at Berea except that the Jews in Thessalonica were not content to, to just stir up trouble at home. They wanted to go abroad and stir up trouble. And so Jews from Thessalonica came down to Berea and stirred up a hornet's nest there. There was trouble there. Paul had to leave. And he goes from there to Athens. He stays in Athens for a little while. And finally he kind of settles at Corinth where he stays for a year and a half. And from where uh, these epistles are written, First and Second Thessalonians and, and uh, Galatians, are written from Corinth, although the postscript says Athens is possible that it was written from Athens in his short stay while he was there at Athens. Now, there was Paul and Silas and Timothy. They came to Thessalonica and preached. It says for three Sabbath days they reasoned in the synagogue. Now, there's a couple of things that I want us to notice from this some important things that have important implications for us today. Paul, when he left Asia Minor and went over into Macedonia, I suppose he had no particular agenda. He just he didn't know exactly where he would go. Philippi was, was uh, an important center. Uh, Thessalonica was an important center. Obviously, Athens was important. Corinth was important. He would go to these major cities, and all of which places he found uh, synagogues of the Jews. The Jews had been spread abroad there through past wars and upheavals and troubles that had gone on in Judea over the last five, six hundred years. Um, and he came to Thessalonica, and it says he reasoned with them three Sabbath days, and then trouble broke out. Real trouble broke out. Now the question is, how long did Paul stay? At Thessalonica. Well, from all appearances, he stayed three weeks. And during this short labor, a, a great work has begun so that when Paul writes back to the church at Thessalonica in this first epistle, one of the first things he says that he thanks God for is that from you has sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia, but in Achaia. And in every place, your faith is spoken of abroad so that we need, need not speak anything. Already, the church there has, has grown in, in spiritual understanding to the point that, that they are also evangelizing. They're not just, they're not just content to, to do their own thing right here at home. And, and Brother Jeff Harris has well said, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, original with him, but anyway, he says that the church that does not evangelize will fossilize. Well... There's no, no room for calcification here. I mean, these, this church hit the ground running. And from almost day one, they had a, a tremendous evangelistic spirit. They did it because of three things that we'll talk about later. I don't want to get onto that. But the point I want to show you here is that a vibrant, 
a steady, faithful, steadfast church was begun, as far as we can tell, with three weeks of labor. Now, what did Paul do while he was in Thessalonica? Well, when he left, now he left, uh, we read about him leaving the church at Antioch over here in Acts 15, and he says to Barnabas, let's go back and see how the brethren are doing. Now, on the first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit came to the leaders of the church at Antioch and said, I want you to separate these men and send them out for this work. And that was the first missionary journey. And, and we probably could assume by that that uh, they gave them some sort of financial support to send them on their way. And now in the second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul has been gone for some months, possibly a year. In Silas. Now, what does Paul do? This is a byproduct here. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. This is going to be a little bit of an overview message this morning. Um, how did Paul live? How did he pay his rent where he was? Or we, we hope at least, especially in this case here with, with Jason, that perhaps he'd taken him into his house and, and his food. But he tells them when he writes back, he says, Now you know, when I was with you, I was not chargeable to any of you. I labored with my own hands to fulfill my needs. And the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. When he finally settled in, in Corinth, he took up that profession, that trade. He knew how to make tents. And he makes his own living. He, he comments to that, to the Corinthians. He says of them, he said, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. Because I wanted, when I came to you, I wanted to make absolutely sure this one thing. And he says it like this. I wanted you, not yours. I wanted you. I did not want what you have. I wanted you. And so when he preached, he came preaching on these evangelistic works. He, he labored with his own hands. He, he, he did his skilled labor. He didn't expect somebody to, to support him. He didn't, he didn't go around, and I'm not exactly downing this, but he didn't go around to all the churches and say, Now, brethren, I'm going to be gone for three years, and, and how much monthly support can I count on from you? No, that's, that's not what he did. He went trusting God. And, and he went providing his own way, providing his own labor. Now, this is what we're talking about an extensive uh, evangelistic journey. Now, while he was on this journey, churches helped him. And, of course, that was, that was great. When he writes back to the church at Philippi, he says, he says you know, brethren, how that uh, concerning this matter of, of, of financial contributions, he said, I didn't hear from anybody except from you. He didn't even hear from his own home church. They might have even known exactly where he was. Communications like they were, Philippi closer. He said, he said, and while I was even at Thessalonica, you only sent once, you sent twice a gift. Not that I desired a gift. He said, so that fruit may abound under your account. So the, the point is this. Wherever Paul went, he never came to them and said, now I'll preach for so much. Now, let me take just a short side trip here about primitive Baptists and their view of the ministry. The primitive Baptists have always taken, historically, a dim view of what we refer to as a salaried ministry. That is, a preacher who goes to a place and says, I'll come and preach for you for so much. 
or a church who says, come over and I'll, we'll pay you so much if you'll preach. We, we've always taken historically a dim view of that. We believe that, that men ought to go as they are directed by the Holy Spirit of God. Not because of their money. Not because of, of, of hope of financial gain. Um, I, I, I always think about Brother, Brother Steve Hill when I think about this. Um, and I've told this before here, but it just, it just impressed me. I, when he first started preaching, uh, after he'd finished his schooling, and, and he got two offers from two churches to come and do things, you know, preach and whatever. And he had a buddy of his to take the letters first and mark out any mention of money. He didn't want money to have any influence over his decision. You know, if one church says, we want you to come over here and help us, and we'll pay you 30000 a year. And this other church says, come over here, and we'll pay you 50000 a year. Well, he knew that that might be tempting to the flesh to say, well, maybe the Lord's leading me over here. Uh, so he, he wisely had, had someone to, to mark out any mention of money so that, so that his decision could be made based on something that would be more meaningful than money. That always impressed me. That always blessed me. And uh, Primitive Baptists have not usually had to worry too much about those sorts of things because, uh, as one deacon told a, a minister when he was ordained, uh, that seems to be, have been the uh, calling card of the old Baptists for the most part of the late 19th century and at least the middle of the 20th century, says, uh, Brother, don't worry about things. If, if uh, the Lord will keep you humble, we'll keep you poor. And, and that's kind of the way that uh, things went. And nobody was a primitive Baptist preacher, or is today, that I know of, because he's, he's getting rich off of this, or he's making a lot of money. Now, at the same time, I say to you that the Apostle Paul taught that they ought to support the ministry, that the ministers should not have to labor in secular things. They ought to be free to devote themselves wholly to spiritual matters. And he taught the churches that. But as he taught the churches that, he wanted them to understand that this is not for me. This is for people after me. Kind of like Brother Wallace. You know, some of you uh, were not here in the earlier days of the church. And when I came here, uh, Brother Wallace was always directing the great portion of financial resources this church has always had towards me. Um, he, he was in a position to do that. But let me say this. While he was in somewhat of a position to do that, it's not like he was just rolling in dough. And he just he just was so well off, he didn't need any money. Far be it. Uh, Brother Wallace was a common man, a working man, who had small pensions, social security, whatever, you know, things were 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 available and and uh, and he saw this objective and he taught the churches to support the ministry, but himself would would not profit from it. It was always for someone else. And uh, I feel like the, the ship, very often, that's followed in the wake of, of an icebreaker. Brother Wallace did all the hard part, talk, talked about it, taught it, broke some ice, and uh, fellows like me get to, get to follow in his wake. And I'll always thank God for that. And I'll always thank God for his foresight uh, and his forethought and his, his desire for that. Well, that's Paul's. He said, when I came preaching among you, I worked with my own hands. Or else I received, I received gifts from other churches. You, you can testify to this now, Paul says. You didn't, you didn't support me. I didn't ask you for support. You know, when we went to Africa, one of, the, one of the things that one of the ministers pointed out 
He says, he says, you know something different about these preachers from every other preacher that's ever come around here and we've heard of? They've never once asked us for money. And I was kind of amazed at that. I thought, man, who would ask these poor people for money? I'll tell you who, the Benny Hens of this world. And, and people like that, they'd just soon milk a poor African as, as blink at it because they're out there for the love of money. And, and that's the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. A false prophet, you have to pay him to preach. If you quit paying, paying him, he'll quit preaching. A true prophet will preach if he has to go out and dig ditches with his own hands. If that's what he has to do, that's what he'll do. A true preacher will do that. Paul did it. Uh, and and, and that, was, that was common in, in, in the evangelistic works of his day. As the church settled into pastoral things, they were, they were more settled in the support of the ministry, and, and we find that established very early in the book of Acts. Well, so Paul comes to, Berea, uh, to Thessalonica and spends three weeks. Now, there's some internal evidence to suggest the possibility that Paul was there longer than three weeks. He reasoned in the synagogue for three weeks, but there's absolutely nothing in the verse here that would indicate to us that he was there more than three weeks. Some people have complained about the work in the Philippines because uh, some of the very important things that have gone on there have been done in very short periods of time. You know, I, thought, I think this about the Apostle Paul. He understood the, the frailty of the flesh enough to understand that he might never see these people again. This may be his one shot at Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, he, he writes in the epistle, he says, I wanted to come back to you. Time and time again, but it just, it just hasn't worked out. Why it didn't work out, you know, I, I couldn't say. But for whatever reason, it wasn't happening. He wanted it to happen. Uh, so, so what he did was he, he would send Timothy. He couldn't go personally, so he'd send Timothy. Timothy would go up there and, and labor for short periods of time, find out what kinds of things the church needed, the questions that they have, and come back and report it to the Apostle Paul. And then he'd write these letters. Now, there, there is one great theme of 1 and 2 Thessalonians that we want to focus on as we read this. It's, it's the reason why Paul wrote the book. And I relate to his reason a great deal because, you know, we're, we're kind of like the Apostle Paul in a way in that we, we can only go into these foreign countries and spend relatively short periods of time. And, and while we're there, the teaching is intensive. If we're not preaching, we're talking to the people, we're, we're, we're communicating out of the Word of God. But then, you know, you, you, you leave a place and you think, okay, man, this is, this is great. This is, this is established. These people are really... And then you get uh, communication later on and come to find out they, they've got some basic fundamental misunderstanding of the second coming of Christ and of the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul writes to them to correct these errors. And, and uh, that in 1 Corinthians is, is Paul's lengthiest dissertation on the subject. Now let me say this about that whole business. Um, when you think about a church, think about this church. What is it that is absolutely essential to a church's spiritual well-being. Every preacher must seriously and soberly ponder such things. 
kinds of things would be of such a nature as to absolutely derail the church and it end up uh, on, the, on, the, on the rocks of disaster as churches have done throughout the ages. And when we think about those, then we turn to the Scriptures and look at the basic, the fundamental things that were addressed in these epistles by the Apostle Paul, also in the writings of the other apostles. Uh, here Paul writes to correct some basic misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ. Now, there's lots of different opinions about the second coming of Christ in the sense of when it's going to be and how it's going to be and what all the details are and, and you can be a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist or a dispensationalist or something in between. Uh, this guy I've been talking to up in New York, he's a, he's a dispensationalist and, and uh, only you've got a dispensationalist, you've got, you've got uh, pre-trib and you've got mid-trib and post-trib. What's all that mean? Well, all I, all I do is to say that is, is to say there's just a lot of different opinions about what all the nuts and bolts are going to be about the second coming of Christ. My opinion, of course, is the correct one. However, we won't uh, press on into that. But what, what we do agree on is the fundamental truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, that, on that we must agree. There is no, there is no shade of of room for disagreement on that subject. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come again. When He comes again, He's going to receive His people to Himself, and they are going to live with Him in glory forever. Now, on that, all evangelical Christians agree. Probably all of any other kind of strife agree. But they had questions. How's this going to be? When's it going to be? What about the ones that have already died? What, what? And they had a lot of questions about this most fundamental issue, and Paul writes, to correct that. Now, not only does he write to correct that, there's some, there's some uh, practical implications from that. For instance, he writes in both epistles about some idleness among some of the people. It appeared that some people thought that the coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus, was so imminent that I'm going to quit my job and wait. But wait for him to come. Well, Paul says, that's not right. And he, then he writes the, the second epistle to tell them, look, there's some things that's got to happen before Christ comes again. And, and when the time comes, you'll see it. But in the meantime, it's proper to work and, and not go about being busybody and so forth. Um, so there's those practical applications. Then, in the, back to the church of Galatia, the fundamental issue that's addressed in that, in that epistle is how are sinners saved? Listen. If, if, if you miss on that, it, it, is, it, is, it is certain that that will affect everything about a person's view of God. How's the sinner saved? And Paul's going to touch on that. I'll tell you what. I would, I'd preach through First and Second Thessalonians just for the blessing of preaching on two verses. One in First Thessalonians, one in Second Thessalonians. Great grace, sovereign grace verses. He says... I, he says uh, in this first, first epistle here, he says, uh, I know that God has chosen you because you have, you have obeyed the gospel that has been preached unto you, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, because our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. Well, you can imagine 
I'm chomping at the bits to get to that one. I love, I love that verse. And then there's another one over in 2 Thessalonians. I love this one, too. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, you know, I, I believe in preaching ex- expositorily, or I just preach on those texts all the time. And I love those texts. That's our bread and butter. I love that. But there's more in the Bible than that, so we preach expositionally. They're practical things and doctrinal things. The church at Galatia, the churches of Galatia were, were being influenced by Judaizers who said, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you know, there's things you've got to do first. And if you don't do these things first, then you can't be saved. And Paul, he, he, as I said, he's not a happy camper when he writes to them. He is very upset and calls them foolish. Some of the modern translations translate that stupid, oh, stupid Galatians. What, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Who's bewitched you? And, and language such as that. Then we see in, in, in uh, Corinth, when Paul leaves Corinth, he spends a year and a half at Corinth. As far as we can tell, three weeks at Thessalonica. A short period of time at Berea. A very little time at Athens. And, uh, you know, a few months maybe. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on there in Athens. He goes to Corinth and he stays there for 18 months. And he thinks about leaving there but then the Spirit of God comes to him and says, Paul, I want you to stay here because I have many people in, these, in this city. And they also must hear this gospel. And so this became the center of his, of his ministry there on that, on that what we call the Greek peninsula. But after he leaves Corinth, 18 months, look at all that has gone haywire after he leaves. And I, I, I kind of relate to, to Paul. Uh, my arm this morning, I can I can hardly extend it, and I'm not telling you my aches and pains. I'm making a point here. Uh, I'm talking about I bruised a muscle or something. I don't know what I did. Anyway, Friday I got out and burned some big brush piles out in the pasture there that was just taking over, and uh, and of course I knew I'd have to beat the grass, beat the fires out all the way around the fire. Uh, be, you know, let it get, I wouldn't didn't want to get out in the grass. Oh, mercy. It was bigger than I thought. And talk about begging God. I begged God, please, Lord, let the wind blow some other direction. And I was beating on one side of that fire, and I'd look over yonder, and the fire got out on the other side, and I'd run over there and beat on that a while. And, and uh, I'm telling you, my old arm just Charlie horsed on me. And then I had two others that I'd done, and, well, anyway, it, 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 was, it was entertaining. Well, that's the way Paul is. He's, he's, he's fighting all these fires. He, he comes and he thinks everything's under control. He, he's preaching at this church and, and, and they've got incest in the church of, a, of such a gross nature. He says, even the Gentiles don't do this. And you, you seem to be proud about it. There's no unity in your church. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you're abusing the Lord's Supper. You, you don't even understand the basic things about the doctrine of the resurrection. And, and uh, they had just gone haywire in this whole business of, of uh, the, the, the gifts of this Holy Spirit. And I could just see Paul just running around that thing, trying to beat out a fire over here and beat out a fire over there. And, and, just, and just no wonder he said on occasion that, he, that, that he, he, his life, he said he wanted his life. He wrote this in Galatians. He said, my, I see that my life, I see my life as being poured out like a drink offering. 
a sacrifice unto the Lord. I hope it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, I'm I'm setting the stage in one sense for the afternoon service. I hate to tell you, but but you're going to have to listen to me again. This afternoon, I've got some things on my mind I want to talk to you about. Issues that we're we're considering here in the church right now. And and, and, uh, when we look at the churches of the New Testament, we look back at the church at Thessalonica. There's some people who have some fundamental misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ. It's affecting the way they live every day in their lives. Paul's correcting that. The churches of Galatia are in danger of, of going after what he calls another gospel, which is not even another gospel. But somebody has bewitched you and tricked you into going off on this tangent that you don't need to do. Then the church at Corinth and all, all this other things that he was dealing with. Well, it tells me this. When Paul writes in the first verse, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I dare say the Apostle Paul did not just say, Dear Thessalonians, that's how you always start your letters. Or maybe my dear. Or my dearest, right, your wife, or whatever. You know, you, you just you just start off. And then you sign it, sincerely, start off. This is not a perfunctory thing Paul is doing here. You know what Paul knows that the church at Thessalonica is in desperate need of? Let me tell you what it is, my friends. The exact same thing that this church and every other church of the Lord Jesus Christ is desperately in need of. And that is grace. And peace. Very often, Paul includes in these uh, these greetings on the epistles in the epistles of mercy. And you know what we need. You know what we need. That Paul prays for the church at Thessalonica. We ought to pray for ourselves. You know what we need. We need grace from God, don't we? Don't we need for God to give us what we don't deserve? Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is His withholding from us what we do deserve. Not only do we need grace, we need mercy every day of our lives. Because because when we see these New Testament churches under the influence of the apostles themselves, falling into squabbling, falling into divisive things, going into false doctrines, and Paul constantly having to deal with these things and work with these things to the point of of exhaustion, of, of labor, He said, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. What do you need to pray for? For this church. You need to pray for grace. Certainly you need to pray for it for yourself. Unmerited favor from God. How many of you would like to say, Oh God, look at us here at Ripley Primitive Baptist Church. Aren't we wonderful? I mean, you know, Lord, look at us. We're all dressed up. Here we are at church, and and, uh, and everybody's giving Brother Mike some reasonable attention. We had a good song service this morning, and and uh, the prayer was good, and I, I, all the people were friendly to me, Lord. Well, how many of you want to hold that up before God and say, look at it. Ah, but what about what God sees in our hearts? 
What do we think about what God saw on the way to church? And the kids were running this way and that, yelling at the kids. Let's go. Or maybe you just maybe you just slept to the last minute and you just you know dragged yourself out of bed and you slogged your way up here and maybe you get to feel a little good while you're here. You know what? We don't deserve anything from God. The best obedience of my hands, the hymn writer well wrote, there's not appear before thy throne. But faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. Oh, listen, my friends, every day of our lives we stand in need of God's grace and mercy. And then you know what else we need? We need peace. A tranquility of soul that Paul says surpasses all understanding. You shouldn't have it, but you've got it. You know, I look about, look about the congregation. I see different people in different circumstances and different situations of life. And you know what you ought to be? Probably all of us, whatever our different things are. You know what you ought to be? You ought to be a nervous wreck. That's what you ought to be. That's what I ought to be. Sometimes I, sometimes I, I get there. Kathy and I didn't spell each other along the way. One of us would probably do something we'd be really sorry about sometime down the road. And, you know, you get the feeling that way sometimes, stretched to the limit and and about ready to pop. But you see, God, in His mercy and grace, gives us a peace that passes all understanding. And so He prays to the church at Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you and I stand daily in the awareness of our desperate need of God's unmerited favor. May we stand every day in, in solemn awareness of our need of His mercy. And may we, may, be, may we be the recipients daily in our lives of His peace, peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation through His name. And I pray, Father, that You would bless this assembly. Lord, You've been so good to us for the last 25 years. You have certainly, time and time again, given us that which we did not deserve, and You've withheld from us that which we did. And Lord, You've blessed us with a sweet peace a remarkable peace in this church such that rancor and discord have been so at a minimum. We bless you and we thank you. We we receive that as, as grace and mercy from our God. I thank you for the love that abounds and the peace that is with us here. But, oh Lord, we see the Apostle Paul no sooner gone from Corinth than major issues to address. Even though Paul only had a short time at Thessalonica, some fundamental uh, questions arose in their minds about one of the most important issues in the Scripture. And so, Father, I pray that You bless us to be vigilant and diligent in preaching the Gospel. Not only I in this pulpit, but we in our homes, And Lord, may it be so that 
in this church as well as the church at Thessalonica that from us has sounded out the word of the Lord and have been a blessing not only here but in other places as we trust it is this day. Now, Father, we pray that you'd bless us as we meditate on these things. May they be powerful and sweet to our lives. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and sing number 188. listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.